0: Colossians chapter 1. I asked the question this morning, what is in your blood? I'm not asking for an anatomical description of the red fluid that's coursing through your, through your veins, but I refer to the figure of speech we sometimes use to describe a person's passion. We might say as someone that hunting is in his blood. Or gardening is in her blood, or something like that. But I ask you this morning this question as a Christian what is in your blood? What defines your passion, your life orientation? If I could say it this way, what defines your obsession as a Christian? I fear that what is in the blood of too many Christians is honestly not all that different from unbelievers. They profess faith in the Lord Jesus to provide salvation, but it's really in their blood to have a happy family, it's really in their blood to enjoy material possessions to achieve financial security. It's in their blood to get their way in life. It's in their blood to secure social acceptance from peers or family. Maybe to simplify it all, what's really in our blood is to be happy. In a temporal limited sense here and now to just be happy. I wonder what would happen if we could strip away the self-delusion. If we could see ourselves as God sees us. If we could just see ourselves as our lost friends and neighbors see us. And find out what is truly in your blood. As we return to our select studies in the book of Colossians, it's difficult not to discern what was in Paul's blood. As we come to the end of chapter 1, we're going to skip down to this section as we bring together various passages from the book of Colossians over these next three weeks that speak to us as to what we are to be about as God's people, but as we look at Paul's life, it's clear what was in his blood. Beginning at verse 24, Paul discloses his passion for the Colossians' spiritual maturity in Christ. This is what mattered to him. We pick up that strain here at verse 24. Now I rejoice, he says, in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. I rejoice in my sufferings. Remember, Paul is in prison for the gospel. He's suffering. This isn't the Hennepin County Jail. This isn't the Shakopee Jail. This isn't even a federal pen here in the United States. This is a Roman prison. They really, honestly, don't give a care in the world if you ever walk out alive. One less criminal to deal with. He suffers in prison for the cause of Christ. He views his punishment as advancing the gospel. I am suffering for you as I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. We have to consider this phrase carefully. His punishment is filling up what's lacking in Christ's suffering. The idea is not that the atoning work of Christ on the cross is insufficient to save. That our suffering must be added to Jesus' suffering in order to provide salvation. That's not at all the thought The idea here is rather a historical thought. Salvation history is not yet complete. The work that God is doing through time to bring us into eternity is not finished. The story's not done. There's more suffering to do for the cause of Christ. And I'm filling up that story. I am adding to it as people of God lose their lives and suffer for the cause of Christ. And ultimately, Paul does just that as he loses his head, it's severed from his body, we understand by tradition, as he is executed in Rome. Why? For the cause of the gospel. I'm filling up the afflictions that need yet to take place before the story's finished. Suffering for the gospel fills up the quota of sufferings of Christ which will be employed to bring this story to a close. And Paul's specific role in contributing to the salvation of the church is described in verse 25. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which, that is of this body, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That is his job. His job is not to go around and try to get imprisoned. And to die in order to fill up something that Christ hasn't done, his job is to proclaim the gospel. Sometimes that is received, sometimes that is not. God uniquely has chosen Paul and commissioned him to proclaim this saving message. Specifically, that word from God is, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints that is this mystery, a crucial aspect of God's truth that He has been waiting for the right time to reveal. So there is a message of salvation in Christ that has been in the mind of God through all eternity and is now ready to be revealed and is being proclaimed by the Apostle Paul at exactly the right time in redemptive history. What reality has God chosen to reveal specifically, verse 27? To them, that is to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To the Gentiles, there is a mystery revealed. God unites Jew and Gentile together in Christ. The Old Testament prophets, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll find references scattered throughout to the response of the Gentiles to the saving purposes of God. The prophets announced that. The Gentiles will respond. What they never really did was explain how that works. There's the mystery that is revealed at exactly the right time. Now that Christ has come, God reveals to us the truth about what the prophets were saying. The Gentiles are not only going to respond to the salvation of God, they're going to be brought into His people in the body, the church, Jew and Gentile uniting together in Jesus Christ. This is the mystery Paul is proclaiming. That's why the Colossians have the message. They're Gentiles. This commission from God is to go to the Gentiles and to proclaim to them that they may come through Christ into the saving purposes of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is his message. Is it any wonder why Satan wants to stop that? Why he persecutes those that bring such a message of hope? Jew and Gentile united to one another, sins forgiven, becoming the children of God on our way to heaven, and here as we wait, living righteous lives of blessing and goodness to all around us? What's the problem with that? It seems like it would be beneficial to most cultures to have such people in your culture. It would be beneficial to most businesses to have such people in your business. What's the problem? The problem is it is the genuine message of God. And Satan doesn't like it, nor do his people, and so it is squashed. And the voice they seek to silence by throwing him in prison, but Paul will not be stopped and the gospel will not be stopped. And so he proclaims this message that united by faith to Jesus Christ, believers have a secured future in heaven with him. That there will be glorification in Christ's presence. There is a hope of glory. Referring to the final consummation of the believer's salvation. This is the message that we have proclaimed to you. Indeed, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is what is in Paul's blood, to use that phrase. It is, first of all, the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. This is His life. This is life. And so He proclaims this message of Christ crucified and risen. And secondly, presenting believers mature in Christ when they meet the Lord. That is, working for their maturity so that as they meet Christ in eternity, they will be presented as mature in the Lord. And you note the phrase here in verse 28, or the the word, everyone. This is a subtle attack on the false teachers that the Colossians are uh, facing. Wisdom in the pre-Gnostic teaching is something that certain elite individuals gain. They gain a unique kind of wisdom to draw closer to God. But Paul says this is the labor for everyone to present Christ to all. It's not for the elitist. There's not access here to some hidden knowledge. The goal is not gaining the hidden knowledge. The goal is gaining maturity in Christ. To be growing in divine wisdom. This takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 9. Remember, as we looked at this last week, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what is it, Paul? Should we be going after knowledge or not? It's understood in the right way. We go after the knowledge of God, but this is, inv- this is the invitation for all people to come to know what God wants, not for an elite few. The goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. This is what drives Paul. In fact, as we notice here in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You get the idea, Paul's this laid back cleric who's biding his time in anticipation of retirement, just going through the routine, can't wait until the day he's done his work. You don't get that idea with Paul, do you? I toil struggling with all the energy that powerfully works within me. For Paul, the maturity of the church was an issue of toil. We'll come back to that thought, Lord willing, in just a moment. But who is Paul? He is a man who pours out his life, struggling in the interest of spiritual maturity. The sanctification of believers was in Paul's blood. And where does this zeal come from? Where do you get it? Was it driven by a passion to succeed in ministry? Was it a competitive craving to outpace other apostles, other leaders in the church? No, obviously Paul's zeal was a divine gift. It was a gift from God Himself, verse 29. I'm struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Paul's zeal was a divine gift given to a man who shared God's own passion. God supplies Paul with this energy because Paul is partnering with God in the divine agenda. It's a thrilling thought. Go back to verse 11. In one eleven, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That's exactly what Paul has. He's praying for them that they would receive this same gift from God to be filled with a zeal for the maturity and the growth of God's people. And We need to wake up here. We need to think very carefully and hone in because this is the center of the text before us today. The message is Christ is in you. He is our blood. He is our life. It is the indwelling Christ. And not only is the message set here, but so is the agenda. The agenda then for God's people is spiritual maturity in Christ. A passionate quest to join in the sanctifying work of God. We have the indwelling Christ through faith in the Gospel And possessing Christ, then, the job and the agenda of our lives is to grow and to mature in Christ. This isn't a side issue. This is not to be a hobby. This is to be our life. Christ is our life. And everything else are the details. What specifically does Paul labor to see in the lives of the Colossians? What does he have in his mind here when he says, I labor to present you mature in Christ. This is the whole agenda. This is what it's about. What does he have in view? Verse 1 of chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. He didn't have to personally start a church to care for the people that were there. You've not seen me face to face, but I labor and struggle and toil for your maturity in Christ. And here's what I'm aiming at, in part, the whole book is the answer, but in part. That, verse 2, their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Let's stop there for a moment and consider what he's aiming at. First of all, that they would have encouraged hearts. Maturity in Christ means that an individual is filled with confidence and hope and joy. This is something God alone can supply. God alone can do, but Paul labors for them in prison. Think of it. Where he lives in joy and confidence and courage. Why? Because of the circumstances around him because of all the friends that are with him, because God has a wonderful plan for his life and isn't it wonderful and joyful and everything's working so beautifully. Not at all, it's Christ is in him. He lives in vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, so you put him in prison or put him in a king's castle, there's joy, there's confidence, there's encouragement because his perspective is centered on Christ. He wants them to have the same courage of heart and he labors and struggles to see that it's formed in them. Secondly, he wants them to be united in love, that your hearts would be knit together in love. That is, those who are maturing in Christ are those who seek unity and peacemaking among believers. That there would be, in love, a connecting point that draws them together. And thirdly, to see Jesus for who He is. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That they see Jesus for who He is. And, noticing verse 3, in whom, Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him are hidden, that idea, we have to be careful here, that's not that it's hard to find, and you've got to crack Jesus open to figure out what the wisdom is, though there is some work to that end, but that's not the point here. Hidden means stored up. The idea of put away in a place of safety and storage. Nothing will ever take the wisdom away from Christ. His treasures, it's like going into a treasure room of a great king, There are treasures of wisdom and knowledge stored up there. We can enter into that knowledge, all of us, as Christ is indwelling us. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus in us is our life and He is a source of wisdom and truth. As Peter puts it in his second epistle, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Why? So that we would be partakers of the divine nature. That is, Christ in us produces within us knowledge and wisdom and truth. In the context of all of this, verse 4, is I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There's a danger here. He's writing in part because of this danger. There is philosophical speculation and there are false religions that are swirling all around the Colossians and all of these religions coming out of the pit of hell itself are directed at the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to bring Christianity down, you really ultimately don't bring down some leader. That gives the church a black eye for a while. And it allows everybody to sort of snicker about the hypocrites in the church. But all that does is temporarily get people offline or gives them an excuse. If you want to bring down Christianity, what you need to bring down is Jesus. And there is a battle that rages everywhere to bring Him down. And we can look at a fallen leader among the believers in our nation... And hear this in the news media and be concerned about what this is going to do to the reputation of Christ, all the while drinking at Satan's well with philosophies and thoughts that are bringing down Jesus. That are compromising the biblical truth about who He is and about His all-sufficient power within us. We drink at these false wells And we miss the indwelling Christ. Paul is saying to us, Jesus is what you need. Now, I don't mean by that that there's no place for us to read a book. There's no place for us to talk to other believers. In fact, God indicates that we should be doing these things as we understand Christ through one another and are able to support one another. But we've got to be very careful where we go for help because Christ is all-sufficient and when you're adding something to him or you're talking to someone who's tearing down his all-sufficient grace and power we may well be diluting the only source of true power and wisdom there is and Satan jumps with joy because the way to keep Christians weak is to keep the vision of Christ dull So philosophical speculation and false religions swirling around and cultural uh, concepts and ideas pull Jesus down. But in Him, Christ in you, and in Him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, says Paul. So, don't let anyone, verse 4, delude you with plausible arguments. For... Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Christ is what you need, He is all sufficient. And I rejoice to hear reports that the power of the indwelling Christ is evident in the faithfulness of your daily walk. There is good order, that is, they were apparently a functioning, healthy Christian assembly. There's good order, and there is, secondly, a tenacity in their faith. They are holding firmly to Jesus Christ. I rejoice in that, says Paul, and I'm laboring in prayer day in and day out and struggling in my writings, and as I'm working to see Christ formed in you, I rejoice to see this order and this tenacious faith. Hold to it. Don't let anyone delude you. Christ in you is the answer. He's the source. He's the hope. And so Paul, rejoicing in all this now, turns to call the Colossians to remain loyal to Christ in a very pointed way at verse 6. We've seen his struggle for them, and now he comes to them and says, verse 6, "...therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him." Here's the imperative. Here's the command. "...therefore you are showing evidence of persevering faith. I am struggling in your behalf with all my might." So here's my appeal. Will you please, by the grace of God, walk in Christ as you received Him? Uh, Time out here. I'm going to take a little short rabbit trail that will be very helpful and perhaps turn on some lights for a few of you. For the rest of you, it may seem real obvious. But depending on the teaching, may I say perhaps wrong teaching that some may have, I think it's important we understand receive here. What does it mean, this truth that you have received? I think we're headed down a wrong path to think of this in terms of John 1.12. As you received Him as Savior, that is, as you received Christ as Lord... That's how you're to walk in Him. Now, there's truth to that, so we're okay when we're fairly safe there. My point being, I think he is saying here, yes, you received Him in faith and in full confidence, so keep walking in Him that way. But that, I don't believe, is the intention of this text. Received is a word that was used, really a technical term of that day, of receiving tradition. That is receiving a body of doctrine and belief. So what he is saying here is they were to live faithfully in response to the pure doctrine about Jesus Christ that they received from Epaphras. There are some who have said, live in Him just as you received Him means you didn't do a blessed thing to receive Christ the Savior, it was just a gift, and so don't do a blessed thing to try to come close to God. You just wait around for Him to sanctify you. Because it's all just a gift, and you are just simply to receive it in faith. That's not what he's aiming at here. Now, we are to live the Christian life by faith. But what he's saying is, you have received a solid doctrine that has been delivered from the apostolic community to you. Walk in that doctrine. That doctrine is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, as we look at verses 15 and following of chapter 1, this is who He is, has come to this earth in human flesh to live a perfect and righteous life, to die in the place of sinners, to rise from the dead, to give His salvation to us, bringing victory over this fallenness in which we live and restoring Setting in motion the restoration of the salvation and redemption of all things. The physical world and His people who trust Him in faith. This is the message you received. This is the doctrine you were were given. Now as the false teachers come in, as the false religions ploy their trade around you, don't give up what you received. Hold to the true doctrine about Jesus Christ because it's everything. Live your Christian life by holding tenaciously to that doctrine concerning Christ. And we notice here that, as one commentator puts it, Christology and ethics are intimately conjoined. That is to say, our belief about Jesus Christ is directly connected to how we live. Those who profess a deep loyalty and knowledge to Christ who do not live like Jesus are false in their profession at whatever level that is. To know Jesus Christ, to respond to the indwelling Christ is to live like the indwelling Christ. Where there is weak faith, where there is, verse 2, an entrenched spiritual discouragement, an unwillingness to be knit together in love with other believers, a dullness to the wonders of true doctrine, spiritual immaturity is evidenced. Spiritual immaturity is evidenced in sinful behavior. And here at this point we all, I'm sure, feel a bit weak in the knees because we deal with spiritual discouragement and depression. We deal with self-centered disregard of the unity of the body of Christ. We find that our love is weak. We find that foolish living and foolish thinking plague us. The answer to it is Christ. The indwelling Christ and a response to Him, which is indicated as we continue in verse 7, that we would in Christ so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The key is our relationship to Christ. We have died with Him. We have risen with Him. We have no life. We have no purpose. We have no source. We have no hope without the indwelling Christ. And one consequence of being rooted and grounded in Christ is radically, let me say it this way, living a life that is radically oriented to Christ produces in us a tongue that is radically oriented against our world. To be radically oriented to Christ means that our speech will be radically different. And of course, our tongue speaks of what's in our heart. Rather than a tongue that masters in gossip, and bitterness, and revenge, and self-promotion, and complaining, Where we are rooted and grounded in the indwelling Christ, there is produced a tongue that gives thanks to the Lord. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That takes us back to verse 12 of the first chapter. Remember His prayer for them giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light as we are rooted and grounded in the person of Christ we know that we are inheritors of heaven and it produces a thankful tongue anybody convicted here <laughs> am I the only one wow it's so easy For us to use our tongues to find everything that's wrong with everyone and everything around us and to spew it. What it's saying is, and this is so hard for us to think this way, it's not what's outside and around us. That's the real problem. The real problem is if we are rooted and that we are not as rooted and grounded in Christ as we should be. But as we are rooted and grounded there, and in fact, that is indeed the reality in the life of the believer, but as we live out that reality in relationship with Him, we have a tongue that speaks out the glories of God. And we're so taken with that glory and so taken with that future that He has provided that we have a tongue that gives thanks. Do words of thanksgiving flow from you? Do they flow from a rootedness in Christ? And as I look at your faces and I know you as a congregation, it's hard to say it without tears. Because I know there's struggles and trials and difficulties that you're facing. As we all are. It isn't easy It's not that we wish away the trials and difficulties of life, but it is saying this, we need to grow in our concept and understanding of the glories of the indwelling Christ and to know that he is greater than any trial on the outside. To be rooted and grounded in Christ and to live out that life is that for which Paul gives his all. And I don't think he's a hypocrite. Paul is dealing with problems that are beyond anything that we will ever bear. He is dealing with an imprisonment here. He is dealing with a loss of everything that he earned and gained and knew in his religious world. He is dealing with the death of fellow believers in Christ who are being persecuted and tortured. And he bears the weight of all these churches and all these problems. And he gives thanks. Because he's rooted and grounded in Christ. So as we look at this passage and consider it carefully we see here and cannot miss the all-sufficiency of the indwelling Savior. Our natural orientation is to look inside for salvation when the answer is outside. That's where we are as unbelievers. Before we come to know Christ we tend to think that all the good answers are inside and all the trouble is outside but somewhere in His glorious grace God shows us that the answers outside It's Jesus Christ. Now follow me on this. I've got to learn to look past me for my own salvation and I realize that salvation is an external thing, an external person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I come to the place where I set myself aside and my own self-righteousness and I receive a person. And I come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I'm saved. You know what then happens? In sin as Christians, we now have the indwelling Christ, and now we begin to look outside for answers. Isn't that ironic? In our lostness, we look inside when the answer's outside, and in our salvation, we look outside when the answer's inside. I don't mean inside us as us alone, but I mean in the indwelling Christ. And the answer now is, isn't there some way to fix things? Isn't there a book or a teacher or a change of circumstances or a different church or a new study or a different person in my life that would be the answer to what I'm missing when the answer is the indwelling Christ? He is in your blood if you know Him as Savior. He is your life if you have come to genuine saving faith and he dwells in your heart by faith. We have the all-sufficiency of the indwelling Christ and we need to face it and to ask the question, is it evident to others that Christ dwells within me? Let me come back to that in just a moment, but say secondly, this whole thing is hard work. Sanctification is hard, hard labor. Again, I would speak against those who have the idea that sanctification is simply trusting Jesus. It's all you do is just trust Him and He'll work things out. He will bring maturity in your life. It doesn't seem that Paul's saying that here at all. Now, in one respect, it is true. There is nothing that we can contribute to our sanctification in our own strength. But notice what Paul says here. I toil, struggling, verse 29. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea. I work, I toil, I work hard that you would mature in Christ. And we too should work hard and labor and toil for the spiritual maturity of one another. How did Paul do that? How did he toil for the spiritual maturity of others? What does that mean, Paul? What are you doing? Well, simply, and I'd like to meditate on this a whole lot longer, but just simply, we know what's at least external, and that is prison. That's one thing he's doing to labor very hard, is prison. It's difficult. In fact, as we add to that, as he says to the Corinthians, five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, without food and cold and exposure. And then he says this, hear it, and apart from other things, There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. My anxiety for all the churches. That's holy anxiety. Most anxiety is nothing but wickedness. But this is holy anxiety. He has a deep concern that people would mature in Christ. And he prays and labors for them. It's prison. It's His care for the churches. This genuine interest in their maturity. It's His writing and the labor of love that goes into His letters to build people up in the faith. And certainly it is His prayers. Chapter 1 and verse 9 and following. From the day that we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you'd know God's will, verse 10, that you'd walk worthy of Him. Number one, bearing fruit in every good work. Number two, increasing in the knowledge of God. Number three, being strengthened with all power for endurance and patience. Number four, giving thanks to the Father. These are His prayers of labor for His people, for these believers. It's not hard for us to see one another's weaknesses. It's not hard for us to know why an apostle would labor and toil and struggle when we look at our own lives and consider what must have been the case with this first generation of believers in a godless world. But I wonder, do we pray to see Christ formed in our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we pray to that end? Do we even care? Is there a genuine concern that Christ would be formed in us. This isn't a project for one person. It's not a project for a team of leaders. It's a project for every member of the body to bear up this challenge, to see us mature in Christ. And there is, in our own personal walk, obviously a call here for great personal effort. Christian, if you know the Lord as your personal Savior, Christ is in you. Your agenda is to mature in Christ. To grow up in that relationship and to become what God wants you to be in Jesus. And I think just to sense where we're on track and where we're not, we need to ask the question, is the life of Christ coming from me? Am I accessing Him as the source of my life and joy? He's there if you know Him as Savior, but am I accessing Him there? Am I living out the life of Jesus? Again, we can say, till we're blue in the face, I love Jesus. I honor Jesus. He is my Savior. But if His life is not flowing from us. We've got hard work to do. We can claim that we know Christ as Savior and be following him and yet have attitudes that are not what Jesus would do if he was in our circumstances. We're not called to be everything Jesus is. He's not calling any one of us to be a great teacher of masses of people and to heal uh, people and to walk on water and produce food. He's not asking us to do those things but our calling is to live as Jesus would live if He were in our shoes. And we speak of the indwelling Christ, and we claim that He is our Savior, and yet we permit attitudes in our life that He would never have in our circumstances. We permit a focus in life that He would never have if He were in our shoes. We have purposes and agendas That we know are not Christ like and God honoring. Christ dwells in us. What we need to do is to come to him and rejoice that he's in our blood, to rejoice that there is a oneness between us, and to come to know him better. How do we do that? By God's grace, you can read the book, but by God's grace, we'll come back on next Lord's Day right here and we'll consider that very point because Paul lays it out for us. How do I actively go about living out the life of Christ? I've given you one picture here today, and that's if I'm living in a way Jesus would not live in my shoes, there's the issue, and I've got to go after that tenaciously. We'll talk about that tenacious effort that must go into our sanctification if we're going to live like Christ by God's grace as he brings us back together on the Lord's day. And as I said, it isn't my ideas. Just read the book if you can't wait till next week and we'll rejoice together. Let's bow for prayer.